Hi, everyone, and welcome to Academic Dean, where we connect with passionate college leaders who share their stories and viewpoints of higher education, especially lessons learned along the way. Now, here's your host, Dr. Dave Gurchak. Hi, everyone. Today, I'd like to welcome Dr. Kimberly Lawless to our show. Dr. Lawless is the Dean of the College of Education for Penn State University in State College, Pennsylvania. Hi, Kim. I'm excited to have you on our podcast today. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. I look forward to our conversation. So tell me about Penn State and why students select the institution and also your college. Sure. Um, well, uh, I'm not sure that I can say much more about Penn State than its reputation out there. Uh, it's, it's a large, one of the largest land-grant institutions in the country, which brings with it just about every opportunity that a college student or a graduate student, faculty member, staff member, um, or the community members uh, within State College where we reside um, could ever dream of having access to. So there's a lot at the table that people can kind of take from in a smorgasbord style, you know, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. More nuanced, though. Uh, I think Penn State is known for its excellence. Uh, we are one of the top institutions for recruitment um, in the corporate world. Uh, we're always ranked in the top two or three companies, uh, uh, places where companies look for um, new hires. And that really comes from a deep investment in the curriculum. So our faculty, although they are known for their research, um, some of them are preeminent researchers, really take pride in making sure that our curriculum is meeting what it is that, that students need in order to go into the workplace. And that occurs in the College of Education, it occurs in the College of Engineering, Nursing, or any uh, of the units on our campus. And within that excellence, uh, there's a lot of, a lot of universities can claim they have an excellent curriculum. Um, but Penn State takes a slightly different approach and I think that's part of what makes it so special and why it's so attractive to many people. And that is really an interdisciplinary approach. So our campus is structured in a way that we have the opportunity to do collaborative programming. Mm. So I can uh, do a collaborative program with the law school. We have a joint PhD JD. Um, we have a undergraduate program in educational um, public policy, and we partner with the School of Public Policy that is out of liberal arts. And the infrastructure allows us to do that. So there's no budgeting issues that are getting in the way. Uh, we can share our classes, we can share our faculty expertise, and our students get to be the benefit of that. And that also allows for a lot of creativity from our students in divining a path through Penn State. One of the things I've learned over the past three years since I've been the Dean here is there's this, the only way to describe it is there's a, like a blue collar academic identity. And by blue collar, I mean, super hardworking, super motivated. Our students wanna suck the very marrow out of their experience here at Penn State. So it's not unusual for students to have multiple majors and multiple minors. And the way we've structured our curriculum and the very close relationship our students have with our advisors allows all of that to happen within four years. Um, so there is a very unique individualized approach to how each and every student navigates through their four years with us. So what's new at the college then? What's on the horizon? Mm. 
There's some exciting things on the horizon for the College of Education. I think one of the really core missions of our college is to think about how we can change education to educate for change. Um, we have taken ownership and responsibility for the glacial changes that have occurred in our educational system in the United States, right? Maybe the standards change, or maybe we change an assessment, or we change the amount of time someone spends on a particular subject or the particular certification that a teacher has to have. But part and parcel for the past 100 years, education has occurred pretty much exactly the same. In the morning, teacher and kids bustle in, they spend 50 minutes on math, and then they spend 50 minutes on science, and then the bell rings and they become literature people and they have these kind of cloister disciplines and there's no thinking and no um, cross-hatching of the habits of mind that you need um, to exist in the world. Because in the world, science is not cloistered from math and not cloistered from English. So we're approaching um, our roles as being the people who populate, the people who make school go, right? We create the leaders, we create the counselors, we create the teachers, we create um, people that populate inside and outside of formal and informal education. So we need to really re-envision what it is that we're doing here inside our college. So changing what we do here in more seismic ways while still meeting all of the standards that the state requires us to do and making sure that our teachers have the content level knowledge that they need to have to work with students and developmental psych, but shaking things up. And as we move forward, uh, we're gonna see bigger changes. One might ask the question, why do we wait until the junior or senior year in a teacher preparation program to have students go out and actually work with students? When we know during their freshman year, because they're coming into a college of education and engaging in a teacher preparation program, that that's what they wanna do. Why don't we get them there first so that they have some opportunity to understand how they're going to use the skills that they're learning in their classes in ways to help them become a better teacher. So really challenging those core assumptions of what we've done for teacher preparation for decades to try and create that radical imaginary of what can we do if we get outside of that box that we're in. One of the programs that we're developing now uh, is in response to the national uh, emergency around not having enough teachers. Uh, we were already uh, having a winnowing pipeline for teachers and the pandemic certainly didn't help our cause in, in ensuring that we had highly qualified people in our classrooms. Uh, lots of people left because of the pandemic, either they retired or they left the teaching profession because it became too much, too much of being asked about teachers. Uh, in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, one of the ways that that's been solved is a, a, a pretty exponential increase in the number of emergency certification and long-term substitutes. Um, that's what districts have had to do to get adults in the classroom to work with students. So that means there are uncredentialed teachers teaching our students. In the state of Pennsylvania, you have three years once you have an emergency certification um, to get your certification or you're kicked out. Mm -hmm. So we have a group of teachers in the classroom who are uncertified, but they're passionate. They want to be there. They have the disposition to be a teacher. They have the knowledge to be a teacher. They just need the nuts and bolts of how to be a teacher. We're partnering with different districts to create very specialized programs to get those emergency certification teachers 
certification while they are in the classroom, right? So it's a teacher in residency program. Mm. We're piloting that uh, with one district starting this fall with the ability to make revisions to it to make it work better and um, understand what, which pieces can shift from district to district to district. And then we'll be brokering it out in future years to help other districts as well. That is, that is really exciting. Yeah, it's exciting because it's a hybrid program. So there are some components that will be right. done independently through asynchronous um, instruction and learning. But we're trying to use the, the teacher's classroom there uh, where they're the lead teacher as a laboratory. Uh, and so they're learning and implementing. And we'll have observations and coaching and debriefing so that they can begin to kind of do some design-based interventions to understand what works for them and what works for their students across different content areas. It's pretty exciting. Yeah. So since you talked about being a dean for three years, how has your leadership style evolved over the past three years? Um, I would say I probably haven't taken the most typical um, path through being a leader. Well, let's, let's talk here. about that. Let's first talk about your path going into the leadership, and then we'll talk about your leadership style. Sure. So um, coming in, I, I started a career in academia like almost anybody does. I graduated with my PhD. I said, I got to get a job. Uh, I went to a university and started as an assistant professor. Uh, during that time, I had the great fortune of working with colleagues that were very productive in procuring external grants and contracts and very early got into um, uh, the genre of writing and the type of work that's necessary to produce that work and then pull my publications so that I could go through promotion and tenure through that work, as well as teaching, obviously. When I moved to my second university, I thought it was going to be a short-term stint. I moved to the University of Illinois at Chicago. I wanted to be in a city. My husband wanted to be in a city. And I ended up staying there for 20 years. Um, when I got to, to UIC, um, the school had an extraordinarily diverse set of students. It's a ma massive uh, urban enterprise, right? So the diversity of the campus reflected the diversity of the city. But that institution at that time still operated like a predominantly white institution. I mean, most of the faculty looked like me. Um, most, of the, most of the students were what you would typically see in a teacher preparation um, college. So predominantly female, predominantly from the suburbs. And about five years in, we were doing strategic planning and we decided to pivot and to make good on the, the, the foundation of the land-grant mission of uh, the University of Illinois at Chicago, which was to service the city and the greater metropolitan region of Chicago. And that meant that we had to change what it was we were doing, how we were doing it, who was doing it, and who we were doing it with. So we went on a journey for the next 15 years of really reinventing who we were and what we were doing, diversifying not only our faculty and staff, um, obviously our students uh, diversified, um, so a good example, while we were predominantly white students at the undergraduate level, when I started there, when I left, I believe there were only three or four white students in the incoming class, right? So pretty seismic shift, albeit over a two decade period. But in addition, we had to think about the policies and procedures that we were using to, to run the college. 
um, promotion and tenure, uh, recruitment, uh, annual evaluations, curriculum. And all of those things changed and morphed over time as well. It was not always a cakewalk. It was a roller coaster ride. There were high highs and low lows, but we navigated through that space to become a better urban serving institution. When it came time for me across the trajectory to think about moving on, I had been a assistant professor, associate professor, full professor, a department head, an associate dean. I knew I wanted to continue to grow as a leader, and that meant moving up and kind of moving into the, the lead role as a dean. And I wanted to leverage the experiences that I had been through with UIC and find a place where I could take that knowledge and apply it to make a difference. And I bumped into Penn State and everything clicked into place. Very odd to say that, right? Thinking about a massively diverse city and large city like Chicago and saying Penn State was the place to do this, take this same type of mission of reinventing education and thinking about equity and inclusion across everything it, that we did in State College, right? a very small cloistered rural community. But the college itself, when I got here, it was quite apparent that they had incredible expertise. Any one of the programs had a leader in the field if not multiple leaders. There was a burgeoning understanding of the importance of diversity, equity, and inclusion in college. A new minor in social justice was coming along. A good corpus of scholars doing uh, work from a very critical perspective. Uh, innovative methods being explored in doing research. Students who were hungry to understand how we can make a difference in education for all learners in all contexts. And so all of that combined, I, I literally fell in love with Penn State and knew it was, it was a match. This is where I could further hone my skills as a leader and move forward in a way that I don't think any other college or university would have had the the capacity to allow me to do. Well, then what, what about your leadership style? How, how has that changed then from day mm -hmm. one there? Well, it's certainly broadened, right? Uh, you know, I've, I've moved from, from smaller roles into larger roles. I've moved from smaller units into larger units. Uh, so UIC had 57 faculty here at Penn State. I have 220 faculty. So there was a, an exponential shift in the size of um, uh, the unit that I'm leading. But I think, I think even more than that, part of, part of the, the complexity and the shift came an understanding that a leader doesn't have to have all the answers. Although, you know, with, with any answer that's provided, I'm responsible regarding, regardless of who, who, who provides that answer. And that the way to scale up in terms of complexity and size was not to expand the work that I'm doing, but to evolve the work that I'm doing and move it more into a distributed leadership model. So rather than having one person at the top kind of dictating what everybody is doing, um, kind of a micromanager model, what works as you move in that scale up is developing a corpus 
or a team of leaders that each manage their own portfolio, really developing and growing and nurturing relationships with them so that you have a similar mindset in terms of the direction that the university or the unit is going, and then trusting them to carry out that work. That model of distributed leadership allowed us to navigate through the pandemic where communications were throttled. There were no longer hallway conversations. There were no longer opportunities to meet people impromptu to make sure that information got communicated in a face-to-face style. There weren't even face-to-face meetings. Everything was scheduled. It had to come through an email that somebody had to script, um, lots of phone calls, lots of Zoom meetings. Um, But that distributed model allowed us to reach out and actually get information to more people in a fashion where we know those individuals actually had the opportunity to hear that information and soak it in and ask questions about it and understand what it meant for them. So moving from that, you know, I'm, I'm the leader model, which was a very um, young leader perspective uh, to this. We work as a team, we're successful as a team, we make change as a team, And this only works at this scale if we operate with those principles in place. You know, your background's a little bit uh, like mine when you talk about going through all the promotion levels, you know, going through tenure, being a, you know, a department chair, being, moving on up. I always thought that was an advantage for me as a dean because I always felt at least I understood the, the components of how higher ed worked. Today, we see we see individuals coming in from business that haven't even haven't even been in, you know, have really zero higher ed teaching experience, let alone how the system works. And so what are your thoughts about that? Do you do you think that, you know, because that is the old traditional way of going through the ranks. Do you think that is is helpful? So I'm going to use one of my um, well earned deaning skills at this point and say, I think it depends on the person. I don't think you can make a blanket statement. Is it good or is it bad? Uh, I think good leadership stems from the individual that is attempting to lead. Um, That said, uh, I could not do what I do without an understanding, a very nuanced um, and deep understanding of how academia worked. Because if you're someone who's never really intersected with academia other than obtaining your degree and the the amount of time that you spent within the halls could vary greatly. You might've just popped in to teach your classes and popped in to defend your dissertation and then you know, been working or raising your family or whatever um, for the majority of your time. But if you have hardly had an intersection with the academy, things operate differently here than they do in the business. You can't fire someone, for example. You can't fire a faculty member who has tenure. You can't just say, you're not doing your job. In the academy, you have to figure out how you work with that person to resource and support them to make sure they have everything they need to thrive. And if you both do your jobs well and you come to the table with the, the, the desire to, to make that work, it works. And I think what's difficult for people in business to understand is that you also don't work on a time scale like you do in a business. And people are like, oh, academics are slow. It's not that academics are slow. It's that we have divided attention. So a faculty member has to not only think about their classes, they have to think about their research. And with their research, they have to think about 
publishing and getting grants and presenting and having the time to collaborate and continue to read in the literature so that their research keeps getting pushed forward with new ideas. And then there's the whole service component. So a lot of people don't understand that in most academic settings, there is something called shared governance. And shared governance means that the administration that um, hold on to some of the levers in academy, in the academy like budget, um, collaborate and work with the faculty that hold on to other levers in the academy, like curriculum and promotion and tenure and appointments. It only works when those two are, are working in conversation and negotiating and having um, deliberations to move a unit forward together. But that takes time, right? It requires faculty to think deeply and have those collaborative conversations with the rest of their programs and with their students and with their stakeholders to understand what curriculum needs to be offered and how something might need to be revised to, to fit better. And that goes in conversation with the academic leadership to say, can we afford to do this and where are the resources and how can we get them uh, and how can we make this come to fruition? Unfortunately, in, the, in most academic settings, at least at research institutions, service is said to be 10% of what faculty do, but in reality, it probably takes up about 30%. Um, and that's not, that, that takes time to understand. You can't just like get dropped in from a business setting into an academic setting and understand that that's how things work. And they work for that purposely. They work in that way so that there is a collective ownership of the portfolio of work that a unit or an institution puts forward. It's done in that way so that everybody is rowing their oars in the boat in the same direction. Um, and if you took a more business-oriented mentality, you might say, well, you don't need to read those manuscripts. Your research is just fine and it can stagnate which would mean we'd have no innovation in how we do things. Or you could say, you know, an extra 50 students in your class doesn't make a difference. Well, if you're teaching future teachers, 75 students in a class, and you're trying to teach methods of discussion or um, nuanced uh, understanding of uh, scientific concepts and how students might reflect and react, you can't do that in a lecture style class. So even though it makes good business sense, it doesn't make good academic sense. So it's gotta be a marriage. Um, so for me, coming up through the ranks, being a faculty member and then being a department chair and slowly um, becoming a, a more central player in the leadership of an academic unit um, was invaluable. And I really don't know how I would do it if I didn't have that understanding from the ground up. That was a great answer. <laughs> I think I really like that because that really sums it up. I, I've always struggled with that. I, I, I first like the idea. It, it really does depend on the institution and the person in the position. I agree with you on that. But still, I always thought I had an advantage because when you talk about Senate, when you talk about IRB, when you talk about these things, a lot of times when somebody's not familiar with it, they're, they're comment is, why can't you just do this? And you go, oh my God, let's let's go to Senate for a little bit and let's just watch how that works for, mm -hmm. for a day. And then you'll understand it is slow, but it is meaningful. And people all come on board 
for the path for the student to go forward the right way. And what a great answer. I really enjoyed that. Um, what's been some of your proudest moments so far at Penn State? Wow. Um, I don't think I've had a single day here where I haven't had a proud moment. And when you interact with this many people, um, this many students, this many incredible faculty and staff, both inside and outside of um, the College of Education, if you're not having one of those amazing moments every single day, you need to find another job because you shouldn't be in the human, human services profession. Um, but I think when I reflect back on, on the parts of the, the past two years during the pandemic that are not a blur, one of the things that I'm most proud of is how we centered the students in how we responded during the pandemic particularly during the, the 20 and 21 um, academic year where there were no uh, vaccines yet. Um, we didn't have a lot of data about uh, how well mitigation efforts worked, whether that was social distancing or masking, we just know they worked, but not how well. Um, the faculty of this college really came forward with a level of compassion and passion for what the students needed and what each other needed in order to be there for the students. So the College of Education, I am proud to say, um, brought back the largest portfolio of in-person classes with all of the mitigation, right? We had masks, we had deep cleaning, we had social distancing the biggest in-person portfolio at Penn State. We were 75% in-person for our courses, which was the yeoman's job to get to that place. Because simultaneously, the faculty that could come in and wanted to come in to be with their students to have that in-person engagement did so in ways that maintained the safety and respected the mindset of faculty that couldn't do that, right? So we honored each other, faculty honored students, faculty honored faculty, leadership honored both, in order to make sure that everyone was safe and everybody was getting the best experience we could provide in that space. There's no time that I've been prouder. What's been some of your biggest lessons that you've learned so far as an academic leader? Lessons. Um, wow. There, again, leadership is always about evolving. So I probably learn something new every day. Over time, thinking back to the various leadership positions I've had and further grounded in, in my experience here in, in the past three years. I think the number one lesson is you have to listen. And I don't mean allow people to talk at you and, and have the words received. I mean, you have to listen and process and try to really understand where the people that you are working with are coming from and what it is they need to be successful. And sometimes that takes time because not everyone is honest in, in all of these situations. We all have game faces that we put on when, when we walk into a classroom or when we walk into a meeting or when we walk into a presentation or a school 
or some other environment. There, there, are, there are, are expected norms of interacting and sometimes you have to get to a place where you can trust the relationship and build a rapport that allows a little bit unfettered or, or, a, or that, that mask that we sometimes put on in academy to come down so that you can get to the core of the issue. But the receiving of the information allows you to know the person beyond their vita. And when you do that, you can have an understanding of how your, your strengths and your weaknesses can align with the others in ways that create a space for success that alone you couldn't achieve separately. That listening, constant listening is the most important skill you need to have. I didn't always do that. It took time to understand the value of that. And when I was, when I was young, when I was a first, first a department or even a PI on a grant, it was easy to say, oh, I have the answer, right? And come in and tell everybody what's gonna happen and then move forward only to fail because you didn't really take account that not everybody was on the same page with you or not everybody believed in that vision or maybe it wasn't the best idea because it didn't have other people's input. Um, and I think that's the, I think that's the biggest lesson I have learned. So I try to listen in every space. Am I successful 100% of the time? Nope. Um, and I think that's the second lesson is realizing that you're not always going to be successful, that you will make mistakes and that's okay because you're human and everybody makes mistakes. Even the best leaders make mistakes but taking accountability for it, admitting it, and transparently taking steps to rectify a mistake when you do is critical to maintaining some semblance of, of leadership, even in turbulent times. Um, well, let's, let's change our topic here. What, what do you think are the major challenges and opportunities that universities will face over the next, let's say, five to 10 years? Yeah, there's a lot of them. Um, we can start with the most local, which is figuring out what to do in an endemic phase of COVID. We have all lived two and a half years or two and a half academic years now being impacted by the pandemic in terms of how our work is done, who does the work, where that work is done, when that work is done, and we've learned a lot through that phase. We've learned that staff, for example, can be super productive not being changed to a desk from nine to five. And even more productive if you give them the flexibility to take care of some of the things that impinge upon their life, like maybe picking up their kids so they're not worried about it and calling their nanny and then checking in with their kids. Just let them go pick up their kids because they can work at home. I think that's less so with faculty, because faculty have always had a little bit of fluidity with when and how they work. Um, you know, it's not a nine to five job. It's not a, I only work from August to May. It just kind of flows. And sometimes it's at night, sometimes it's at the weekends, um, sometimes it's seven days a week. 
But I think coming out of the pandemic, while there are lessons that we can learn and take forward, like the flexibility we have for the workforce, we have a lot of community building to do. We've, we've not only learned that we can be adaptable and flexible, but we've done so with less interaction with our colleagues. And one of the things that I cherish about academic institutions and universities is the intellectual community that you are embedded in every single day. So you could be walking down the hall and get into an impromptu conversation with a colleague in a different area and all of a sudden be inspired to move in a new direction, try something different in your research or in your teaching. Those are the moments that we've lost. I agree. And how do we bring that back now that everybody has gotten accustomed to working independently? I think that's a big challenge we're going to have to figure out. Our students want it. I hear from graduate students all the time. I miss being able to engage with faculty and just pop by their offices. I miss opportunities to get a bite of food and kind of chit chat with where everybody is. We've got some rebuilding to do for sure. And I think that's a big challenge. I think the second challenge is we've got to figure out how to maintain our relevance. I don't mean that in terms of what the university is, right? There's a lot that goes on in a university that is relevant, particularly for the the young adult phase of 18 to 22, let alone for non-traditional students and graduate students. But again, it's one of those places where we still teach the same way that we taught for the past 200 years. Even when we flopped to the online environment, we created, instead of massive lecture halls, we created massive Zoom rooms. So we recreated it. The problem with that is in today's era, especially having two years of independence, there's not much content and not many procedures out there at the undergraduate level that you can't learn through YouTube and Google when you have a desire to learn it. And if we relegate the value that we bring to students to that level of instruction, we will become irrelevant because Google and YouTube are free. So we've got to figure out how to get that real world application contextual learning, engaged learning, student-centered focus, more consistent across the entire portfolio of the university. We do it in college of education. That should go, that should, that, that should not have to be said, right? We are pedagogists at heart, that's our science. And there are other units that do it, medical schools do it, business schools do it. But that 750 person lecture hall, we really have to ask ourselves, while it is economical and while it allows us to do something at scale, is that really the hill that we want to die on? Because that is where universities will die if we continue to do it. 
Well, what do you think will be the role of the physical campus for universities in the future then? I think that I think that role will maintain as it is. So the role of the physical campus, we we tend to think about kids going to college to learn content. Kids learn an awful lot outside of the classroom when they're at colleges. Really important things. They learn how to be independent. They learn how to be resilient. They learn how to do their laundry. They learn how to balance work and life. They explore things because they have the opportunity and access to things they wouldn't normally have in their regular life, different disciplines, different activities, different groups, they go on trips. So those aspects, the residential campus, you can't get that online. You can't get that in the workplace. You can only get that when you are in a safe environment that has supports to make you successful and make sure that there's some guardrails on what you can do. So I don't think that residential campus experience is ever gonna go away. I think it's too critical for too many to think about, to think about it ceasing to exist. But again, I think the pivot is gonna be how we teach about different content. So for example, freshman year, you come in and you take calculus if you're an engineering major. Second semester, you take physics. Third semester, you take mechanics. Somewhere along there, somebody's gotta say, why don't we just teach them to build a house? They'll understand what the pitch of a roof and the stress on the trusses is going to be if they try to build a house and the roof doesn't stay up. Then we can see this is important. Let me teach this to you. Now, I'm not saying we're going to have kids wandering around campuses with hammers, but you can understand the shift in the perspective that I'm trying to demonstrate here. Engage kids in an application of the skills they're going to need. And they will become aware of what it is they need to know to be successful at that. That will get them to say, I need to know this. They'll have a desire, they'll have a want, they'll have a need. So when that information comes in, they'll be much more receptive and more understanding of that information. That's what we have the opportunity to do at a residential campus that you don't have the opportunity to do in online environments. I think they're both important, but I think they serve different students with different needs and have different types of outcomes. Yeah. You already mentioned the, the large lecture hall. So I could see that changing down the road. I also agree with you on how students are taught. I used to see engineering students go to the two-year campus to see machining and welding so they could put two and two together to understand their, their skills yes. as an engineer. Um, I'm actually looking, you know, the pandemic was terrible, but on the same token, we're seeing some changes that's going to emerge. It's going to be really exciting. And I think the future is set up for some pretty exciting things for both uh, small and large universities. As long as we have the will to grasp that excitement and change. <laughs> uh, well, Here's a fun question. If you had extra budget money right now with no strings attached, what would you spend it on? Oh, 
Um, I think without a doubt, I mean, I, I'm the Dean of a college of education. I'm staring at the face of a teacher cliff. We are really sitting at the precipice of not having enough teachers to teach your kids. And that scares me to death. So if I had extra budget money, I would provide, and there were no strings attached and I could use it any way I could, any way, any way I wanted. I would use that for scholarship money to bring more people into the pipeline, engage more people that have the desire and the dispositions and the, 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 the intelligence to want to be a teacher, but just don't have the financial resources. And I would do so in a way that broadens the diversity of the teacher workforce. In the state of Pennsylvania, the number of districts that do not have a single teacher of color outnumbers those that do. And we know that the literature shows us how important it is that students have the opportunity to engage with role models and teachers who are different than themselves as well as like them. So those are the two, those are the two ways I would spend the money. Here's my last question. Do you have any favorite books on leadership that you would recommend to other academic leaders? Yeah, I do. I do. When I first took this deanship, uh, another dean who was retiring the same semester that I came on gave me a book called The Seasons of the Dean. And it, it walks you through different phases of a deanship. So your first three years, you're in the springtime of a dean, you're onboarding, you're, you're learning a lot, you're honing your skills. That's where I am. Uh, I'm going to extend my springtime because pandemic. But at, at about year four, you move into the summertime where you're hitting your stride and then it takes you through the, the, the second uh, decade of a deanship should you be lucky enough to be in a deanship that long through moving out of a deanship and retirement. So it's a book that it not only helps you at the beginning, but you can revisit it as you are moving forward to kind of check where you are and things that you should be thinking about or that others have thought about that have helped them move through these different phases. So it's one of my favorite books. But my absolute favorite book that I think anybody in a leadership position and also any educator should read is Start With The Why by Simon Sinek. It flips the script on how we typically think about accomplishing tasks. Usually we say, we got to do this and here's how we're going to do it. And this is why it's important to do that. Start with the why says, why is it that you want to do something? Then determine how you're going to do it. And then determine what it is that you're going to accomplish. And just that small mindset change innovates how you approach tasks in ways that take you beyond the limits of history and open up opportunities for you to engage in new ways that the old structure wouldn't allow you to think think through. Well, Kim, thanks so much for being on our show today. I really enjoyed our conversation. Yeah, I enjoyed this too. It's fun to engage with topics that I don't get to talk about very often. Right? Nobody asks me, like, how, how did you become a leader? I'm like, I don't know. 
it's a good thing to reflect on. So I appreciate it. Great. Well, that wraps up today's episode. Thanks everyone for listening. Take care. Thanks for listening to today's episode and make sure to visit our website at academicdean.com for additional information. Also, if you enjoy our podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Until next time.